This next scene in the Gospel of John is going to cover Jesus' betrayal, his trial, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. This has been the target point for John the author from the beginning. He's been reaching towards this point in the story in the life of Christ. And what is revealed in this scene, remembering that Jesus Christ is the central focus of the entire book, what's revealed in this scene is that Jesus Christ is our Savior. So, this series that we're entering into now, we're going to title Jesus, the Savior of the World. Jesus, the Savior of the World. If you jump forward for me, Taylor. That's going to be this series in John chapter 18 through 21, where Jesus, the Son of God, the parting word that that we've seen thus far in the Gospel of John, is revealed as the Savior. Now, this has been hinted at all along. But it's by the events that take place in this scene that Jesus literally becomes our Savior. It is by his death on the cross that he accomplishes what needs to be accomplished for the world to be saved. He must be betrayed. He must stand trial. He must be killed. He must rise from the dead. And he must return to God in heaven. It is by those events that he is revealed not just as the Son of God. Not just as the Word of God who is leaving, but as the Savior. Savior of the world, and specifically the Savior of those who would believe in his name. So we enter this scene in John chapter 18, and tonight uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11. In this scene, we're going to see the betrayal of Jesus. In John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, we're going to see Jesus betrayed. Let Let me read that text. You can follow along in your Bibles as I read. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over to the ravine of Kidron, where there was a garden, in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, And officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. When he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. 
And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? We're going to stop there. As the next scene is Jesus being led away to his trial. It's the scene in which Jesus was betrayed. And yet in the midst of this betrayal, what I hope we see tonight is that Jesus does not lose focus on what his target is, on what his goal is, on what his responsibility is. He, he stays laser-focused, even though his, his friend is betraying him to be killed. Jesus is focused on what he needs to accomplish. So tonight what we're going to call this is betrayed but not dismayed. Betrayed but not dismayed. We look at verses 1 through 11. Okay, so just bringing us up to speed, uh, Jesus' message to his disciples thus far in John 14 through 17, Jesus' message that he wants to give his disciples, that parting word, is complete. He has instructed the disciples in what he wants them to know. He is giving them his parting word. And so now, it's time for him to leave. All that we studied in John chapter 14 through 17 was in preparation for the fact that Jesus was leaving and now it's time for him to leave. His hour has come. So Jesus, as is explained in verse 1, enters a garden. He's been walking here for a while now. In fact, a lot of John chapter 14 through 17 took place while Jesus was actually walking to this garden. He enters this garden in which he's going to be betrayed terminology that's used here it's probably an enclosed garden with with maybe a big gate and jesus walks in here it's a place of privacy we're told that he spent a lot of time here with his disciples there's actually a lot of things that happen in this scene that we're not told about Um, we're we're informed by other gospels everything that happens in this this garden of gethsemane john stays focused on some other details we know that jesus this is the scene where Jesus leaves his disciples. He, he calls them to stay and to pray for him. He goes away and prays to the Father. He asks the Father, Father, if there's any way for me not to endure this, bring that about. And God says, no, you must endure this. Jesus comes back and sees his disciples. And remember, the disciples are asleep. Jesus says, can you not stay with me and pray and watch for one hour? Can you not keep guard and protect me for one hour? The disciples can't. They keep falling asleep. But John doesn't get into that story. John stays focused on the betrayal. So Jesus is sweating drops of blood, praying to God. His disciples are sleeping. Meanwhile, Judas, we're told in verse 2, Judas, who was betraying him, knew the place where Jesus was. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas knows where Jesus meets with his disciples. Remember, Judas has left just a couple of hours ago. Jesus said, go and do what you need to do, Judas. Do it quickly. So Judas leaves, but he knows where Jesus is going. And the reason why he knows where Jesus is going is not because Jesus had told him his plan to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
The reason why Judas knows where Jesus is going is because Jesus so many times had gone with Judas to this same place to teach him. Jesus had poured into Judas in this place, in this garden. Jesus had spent time teaching and discipling and pouring into Judas. And so Judas knew where Jesus would be. And in this place where Jesus had spent so much time with his disciples, as we're told in verse 2, Jesus had often met there with his disciples. He leads a group of men to betray him. We're told in verse 3, that Judas had received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Interesting terminology that we're probably not really familiar with. Like if I told you I'm coming to hang out and I'm bringing over a cohort of people, how many people would you plan for? Nobody knows. What does a cohort mean? Well, a cohort was a group of soldiers that numbered anywhere from 600 to 1,000. And you probably don't have this picture painted this way. When Jesus is being betrayed by Judas, probably picture Judas, a couple soldiers, a couple officers. No, what's happening in this scene, at least 600 men are coming with Judas to capture Jesus. This is an army. It's an army of people coming to capture one man whose one message had been peace. And they round up at least 600 men. And they come to the garden where Judas knows that Jesus would be. They approach Jesus. Verse 3 tells us that they're armed with weapons. Not just 600 men, but 600 warriors armed with weapons and torches and lanterns, looking, searching, hunting Jesus. Jesus knows they're coming. We're told in verse 4 that Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, Jesus knew what was about to happen. In fact, he's been telling his disciples that this is coming all night. For years, he's been preparing them for this moment. He knows that he's coming to be betrayed. He's already prophesied that. Just, just an hour ago, he was prophesying that Judas was going to betray him and hand him over into the hands of men. He knew that this was coming. Not to mention the fact that 600 people don't sneak up on anybody. The, the, these, men, these men are coming as an army. Jesus knows it. So how does he respond? Hundreds of men hunting him down. He knows they're coming, but he doesn't run and hide. He doesn't run away. He could have. But verse 4 tells us his response. Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth. He goes forth. He goes to meet the men who would take him away to his death doesn't hide he doesn't run which by the way is what his disciples are about to do he goes forth to speak with the men who are going to kill him 
This then begins an interaction between Jesus and his betrayer and eventual murderers. And in the interaction that's going to come is where we're going to find our structure for this passage tonight. Because in this interaction in the following verses, and this is going to be our outline for tonight, we're going to see three actions of Jesus that reveal his priorities. Three actions of Jesus that reveal his priorities. The first action of Jesus that reveals his priorities is Jesus reveals his identity so that his power would be known. Jesus reveals his identity so that his power would be known. And draw your attention in verses 4 to 6 as that is revealed. Jesus knows what's coming. He steps forth and he says to these men, Whom do you seek? Now Jesus knows the answer to this question, but he comes up to them nonetheless and he says, Who are you looking for? And he asks them that for a very specific purpose. Remember, Jesus knows what's coming. So he asks them this question, Who are you looking for? Looking for a response out of these men. What does he say? Whom do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is the one that we seek. Very specific entitlement. There's no confusion about who this is. We're looking for Jesus. But they refer to him simply in his humanity. Jesus of Nazareth. No affirmation of who he is. No affirmation of his divinity. No affirmation of his power. Just Literally, we could say, Jesus the man. Just, we're looking for him, the person, Jesus. Jesus looks to them. In verse 5, see that he, Jesus, said to them, I am he. Now, our, our translations of Jesus' response there are a little bit difficult to render. Remember, this is written in a different language. This is written in Greek. And so a lot of translators are looking at this and saying, what's the best way to translate what Jesus said? And there really isn't a great equivalent to the Greek for the English in this. But if you, some of your Bibles, if you look at it, they'll, it'll say, I am, and the he is italicized. And what that means is that in the original language, the he wasn't actually there. What Jesus says in response to the, to the statement we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth is he says, I am. I am. Jesus' response is two words. In the Greek, it's ego e me. I am. And if you've studied the Bible much, then you know that those two words have special significance, especially in the Old Testament. When Jesus says, I am, he's not just saying, I am Jesus of Nazareth. In those two words, Jesus is actually claiming to be God. 
the almighty God of the world when he says, I am. You see, when Jesus uses that terminology, he's actually reaching back to a story in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus about 1,500 years before Jesus says this. And it's a scene where a man named Moses in the Old Testament is talking to God and God is sending him somewhere to, to do some powerful things. And, and, and Moses responds with, I'm going to go and I'm going to speak this message, but who am I going to tell them sent me? And God speaks to Moses and he says, tell them I am sent you. Tell them that you have been sent by the great I am. That in the Old Testament is how God referred to himself. I am. It's a statement of his, of his existence and of his reality and of his eternal being and, and, and him being in the, in the present. It's, it's I am, God says. That's how he refers to himself. This was well known to any Jew. Those words, ego me, I am, are a claim to be God. Not a God, the God. And so when Jesus looks at these men and he says, I am, there's no mistake what he's communicating. Jesus is looking to the people who are about to kill them, and he's saying, I am Jesus of Nazareth, but I'm much more than what you understand me to be. I am God. I am the almighty ruler of the universe, is what Jesus says to these men. I am. And those words do not fall lightly. That is a powerful statement. Not just intellectually or emotionally powerful. Look at what happens when Jesus says that. This is amazing. Verse 6. So when he said to them, I am he, they, his enemies, the cohort, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus says, I am, I am God, I am almighty ruler, I am the ruler of the universe, I am the God. They physically respond literally by falling over. They can't stay on their feet. There is somehow physical force associated with Jesus speaking these words. Like, what is going on in this passage boggles the mind. Can't even really comprehend all that's happening right here. But these men fall over. There's that much power with Jesus speaking these words. Mm. Grew up in, uh, in southwest Florida. And while I was down there, we, we lived through uh, two hurricanes came through when we lived down there. And uh, they're, they're incredible, incredibly powerful forces, hurricanes. There were two that came over our house when I lived down there. And uh, just remember, like, sit, you, you would go out on the back porch because you were protected kind of by your house that tended to curve around. So you were like in a little cave almost in your house. You go out on the back porch and just watch this torrential storm pass by. Rain coming down sideways and wind blowing so hard that, that trees are going from straight up to, to leaning almost like at this kind of an angle. Nonstop for two or three hours. Incredible power. See debris flying all over the place. Houses that are under construction are being torn down. Boards just flying across the sky. 
so much power. And, and yet, you are able to go out there and stand against the wind and not fall down. It was, it was kind of fun. You could go out there and you could kind of lean against the wind and put your arms out against the wind that was coming at you. You could lean into it and not fall over. You could resist the force. These men have no such ability to resist this force. Like we're not told in detail exactly what happens here, but remember, this is an army. Jesus speaks these words and it says they, and it's in the plural, they all, they fall over. I can't even imagine this scene. Jesus says, I am. Men falling down. There have uh, thus far in the Gospel of John been many attempts to capture Jesus. Time and time again, they have come after him. And, and I want to show you a few of them because... Time and time again, these men in attempting to catch Jesus have been met with failure. If you remember way back in the beginning of the study in the Gospel of John, as we're moving through this book, the opposition to Jesus Christ is, is, is getting louder and louder. People are becoming more and more opposed to who he is. And at this point, it's just screaming. They're ready to kill him. But they've actually been ready to kill him for quite some time. Go back to John chapter 7. I want to walk through this book for just a second. In John chapter 7, verse 30, we're given... Uh, really the, the beginning of a scene in which they're coming after Jesus. But time and time again through this gospel, they're going to fail to do so. John chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him. They wanted to grasp Jesus, to harm him. They were seeking to seize him, but no man laid his hand on him. Why? Because Jesus' hour had not yet come. They wanted to grab him. They wanted to harm him, but they couldn't because God was protecting Jesus because it wasn't time for them to harm him yet. Scroll down or, or, or look down to verses 44 through 49. Some of them, again, wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and they said to him, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, you have not been led astray also, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But the crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. What happened in that scene is that they, they wanted, they were tasked, they had an order to capture Jesus and the Pharisees couldn't do it. They were captivated by his teaching. Turn over to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 20 these words, Jesus, again, is teaching a lot about his deity, about who he is. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. They wanted to seize him, but they couldn't. Look down to chapter 8, verse 59. This is amazing. Chapter 8, verse 59. Therefore, they, his enemies, they picked up stones to throw at him. They're ready to stone him to death. They're ready to kill him, but... Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Start to see some miraculous things that Jesus is, is doing. He's surrounded by people. Surrounded by people in the temple. They have stones. They're ready to stone him, but somehow he hides himself. 
They can't get to him. And he leaves. How about chapter 10? Chapter 10, verse 39, the, the attempts continue on Jesus' life. They keep coming after him. Chapter 10, verse 39, Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Wanted to kill him? Somehow, they couldn't catch him. Happens again in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke. And this is defensive terminology here. And he went away and hid himself from them. The opposition is screaming. They want him. They want to capture him, but they can't. Because every time they've tried, it's not time yet. His hour has not yet come. But where we land in John chapter 15, his hour has come. So these men, the, the enemies of Jesus, have been chasing him throughout this whole gospel. We get to chapter 18, and they finally have him. They have him in this garden. They have him with an army. There's no way he's escaping. And they say, you were looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And they're, they're there. They have him. Jesus says, I am. And the army falls over. You have to think in their minds. They're thinking, not again. Not again. Jesus reveals his power that if he wanted to once again they could not lay a finger on him and so Jesus asks the question again <laughs> who are you looking for I mean, we're not told this, but I, it almost just feels like Jesus is taunting them. He said, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus. He said, I am. And they fall down. And then he says, who are you looking for? And you wonder what's going through their mind. Do we say it again? And they do. Looking for Jesus of Nazareth. What's taking place in this scene is Jesus is revealing his power. He's revealing his identity so that his power would be known. That the men who are about to lead him away would know who he is. This is not just Jesus the man of Nazareth. This is God Almighty. Judas who is betraying him, sees again Jesus' display of his power. The man who Judas has seen calm a storm. Who Judas has seen walk on water. Who Judas has seen feed thousands of people with a couple loaves of bread and a few fish. Whom Jesus has seen heal people by the power of his word. Once again, Judas sees power 
the identity of the man that he is betraying and his captors see that very same power. As Jesus reveals his identity and men fall down. It's actually a, a common response to the revelation of God throughout all of Scripture. In fact, almost any time that men are talking or, or are looking at, 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 at God in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament in the form of Jesus, their first move is that they fall down. Fall over. In Ezekiel chapter 1, I'll just show you a few of these through Scripture. In Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28, well, don't turn there, I'm going to read a bunch of these to you. Ezekiel Receives a vision. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. When I saw it, I fell on my face. It's Ezekiel. When he sees the glory of God, he falls down. Joshua. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 14 through 15. Indeed, I indeed come now as captain of the Lord of hosts. Believe that's Jesus Christ in that scene? Telling Joshua, I'm coming to you. I'm the captain of the hosts of the Lord. And Joshua falls to his face on the earth. He bows down and he says to him, What has my Lord to say to my servant? And he said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. About Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he's, he's standing before the burning bush. And I just want you to see this response. He said also, I, God is speaking. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. What does Moses do? He hides his face for he was afraid to look at God. What about Paul in Acts chapter 9? He's traveling. He's on the road to Damascus and Jesus shows up. Jesus, who, who has not been living on earth for years now, Jesus shows up and he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? What is Paul's first move? Paul, flat on his face. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, John, he sees in a vision Jesus. And he says this in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. What these men experience in this scene is Jesus reveals his identity is not different from what men have been experiencing for all the history of the world when they are exposed to God. They fall down. Can't help it. This is how men respond when they stand before God Almighty. It's a fascinating scene. There's, there's power. There's power in his name. In just the revelation of who he is, there is power. It's not a power that we will be unfamiliar with. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that the day is coming when Jesus will be revealed and at his name... Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee will do what? It will bow. Every knee. In fact, uh, uh, Paul, Paul specifies every knee of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth. Every knee hits the deck at the name of Jesus. 
every knee acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord. That day is coming. Every single knee will bow. Some in worship of their Lord and their Savior. Others in admission that they were wrong about him. But every knee will bow. Everyone will acknowledge that he is Lord. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. So, so where, knowing that every man ultimately will experience this type of a sensation, falling down before Jesus. Where? Where do you, where do you land there? Will you bow your knee in worship of your Lord and your God? Or will you bow your knee in admission that you were wrong? That he was Lord, that he was God, and that he should have been your Savior. But you denied. What these men experience here is not all that different from what every man will one day experience. This is how men respond to God. It's a, it's a fascinating scene. But there's a, there's a lot more that's revealed about Jesus that reveals his priorities in this passage. So let's move to our second point. Number two, Jesus protects his disciples so that his responsibility would be fulfilled. Jesus protects his disciples so that his responsibility would be fulfilled. Okay, so Jesus asked them again, who do you seek? And they respond, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way. Okay, so Jesus responds to them. They ask again. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I already told you, I am. I am he. It's me. And then he adds an interesting statement. He says, so if I am the one who is speaking, if I am the one you are seeking, rather, let these go. What Jesus means when he makes that statement is, okay, you're looking for me, you're hunting for me, and you've found me. My disciples are not the ones you're looking for. You're looking for me, and you found me. So don't harm my disciples. Let these men go. You've found the one you're looking for. Jesus, in this moment, is protecting his disciples from Jesus' enemies. He protects them from those who are about to lead him away. You've found the one you're looking for, so take me, but don't take them. Why is Jesus so concerned with this? Well, this has actually popped up several times in the Gospel of John. That one of Jesus' responsibilities was the protection of those that God had given him, specifically his disciples. Jesus had a responsibility to protect these men. In fact, turn back just a chapter to John chapter 17, verse 12. Jesus is talking to God about this responsibility that Jesus has to protect these men in his prayer to God in John chapter 17. He says this, 17 verse 12, While I was with them, 
I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So Jesus says, Father, you've entrusted me to guard these men and I've done that. I've done that for my entire life. And he's, he's talking to the father about how he's, he's completed his responsibility, but his responsibility isn't actually done yet. Because in just a few moments in chapter 18, his disciples are going to be threatened again. The men that are going to be charged to carry the gospel to the nations, their very lives are at stake in these moments until Jesus guards them. He protects them. And he says, you found the one you're looking for. Let these go. Let them leave. This actually points all the way back to to John chapter 6, verse 39. It's where this this theme first pops up in the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, verse 39. He says that Jesus protecting his disciples is actually the very will of God. He says this, this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. And the ones that God had entrusted to Jesus specifically in this gospel are his disciples. And the will of God for Jesus is that Jesus would not lose a single one of them, but that he would keep them, that he would guard them, that he would protect them. And so even in this scene, Jesus continues to do that. Turn back to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, Jesus is continuing to fulfill the very will of God in protecting his disciples. I just want to make a quick note on the obedience of Jesus. Even in this scene, This terrifying scene, Jesus is submitting to the will of God. He's specifically obeying the will of God and protecting these men. Jesus protected his disciples. And there's actually a theme in this gospel that Jesus is not just entrusted with his disciples, but he's entrusted with you and he will keep and protect you. The same way he protected these disciples. He's not going to let you go. He's going to keep you. He's going to hold you. He says in John chapter 10, no one can take you out out of my father's hands. He's put you into my hand and I'm in my father's hands and no one can take you from him. I will keep you. I will protect you. So Jesus does that for his disciples and that's actually actually personalized for us. He does it for you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he's not going to let you go. He's going to hold you. He's going to keep you. He's going to guard you. He's going to protect you so that you can persevere through your entire life in obedience to Jesus. That brings us then to the third action of Jesus that reveals priorities. The third action is that Jesus stops his defenders so that he can embrace the cross. Jesus stops his defenders so that he can embrace the cross. This is revealed in verses 10 through 11. Simon Peter sees all of this taking place and and he gets up. We're told he, he had a sword. He drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. So we have Peter. He's seen the man that he's followed being led away to his death. And, and in, in Peter fashion, he attacks, defending his Lord. He grabs a sword. It's probably a little sword. This is like modern terminology, Peter has like a concealed carry sword here. Like he's got this probably hip length sword and he's got it like under his robe or something and he pulls it out and he attacks and he cuts off this man's right ear. 
And unless Peter's like this master swordsman, which we have no indication that he is, he's swinging for this man's head. He strikes his ear. The man's ear falls off. We're not told in this passage in John, but Jesus actually heals the man's ear. What we're told is what he says to Jesus. He looks at what he says to Peter. He looks back to Peter in verse 11, and he says, Peter, put the sword into the sheath. Peter, put your sword away. Why? Why does Jesus stop the man that's defending him? Why does he stop his defenders? Who does that? These men are defending him. They're protecting him. And Jesus says, no, don't defend me. Don't protect me. Let me be betrayed. Why? So that Jesus can embrace the cross. That's why. This cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? That's terminology Jesus is using that's referencing his death. It's, it's this, the, the, the term cup is like what the Father, the destiny that the Father has for Jesus, ultimately his death, the will of the Father for him. He has given him the cup of death. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, I've been given this cup, I have to drink it. Just a few moments ago, Jesus was praying to God and he was saying, Father, if it's possible, take this cup away. Don't make me drink this cup. But God says, no, you must drink this cup, Jesus. And so Jesus says, okay, your will. And now Peter's defending him. And Jesus says, no, Peter. The Father said, I must drink this cup. Don't try to stop it. I must submit to the will of my Father. And so Jesus willingly embraces his betrayal because in doing so, he's embracing the cross. He's embracing the cross because on it, he's going to pay for your sins. That's why he embraces this betrayal, so that he can be the savior of the world. That's why all of this is necessary, to die for the sins of mankind, to redeem those who would believe, to pay the penalty and to take your place. So that's what he does. He's betrayed by his friend, taken away by an army of men to embrace the cross full knowledge that he is not just Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, he is God Almighty. All the men around him know it. You know it. And now we have the privilege of seeing him fulfill this mission and embracing the cross to die for your sins. We're going to close. I'm going to have the band come back up. I want to close reflecting on that truth because all that is in being come on up, come on up guys. All that is being endured here is for you. Jesus is paying the penalty for your sin. And so I want us to be amazed at this scene, but I want us to realize the personal aspect of this, that Jesus is enduring all of this for us. So we're going to sing of what took place on the cross, that Jesus paid it all, and therefore we owe everything to him.